The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. There are public intellectuals, and then there are comedians. And then there's Baratunde Thurston. He's a public intellectual who uses comedy to make his point, and he's having a moment. Also, this summer, he released a limited series podcast, which coincidentally is called We Are Having a Moment, which we are. I met Baratunde a long time ago because we both wrote about the internet. He also writes about race. Like eight years ago, he wrote this satire slash memoir called How to Be Black. Baratunde has made a career out of writing and talking. In this New York Times profile last spring, he calls himself a sponge for stuff that's happening in the world, especially at the intersection of technology and race and society. So how does that become your job? How do you turn your interests and passions into a successful media career? How do you turn you into brand you? Baratunde shows us that you do it one byline at a time, one book, one TED Talk, and a steadfast commitment to speaking your truth. Here's Baratunde. I make media uh, that attempts to entertain and, um, and inform and humanize. And, and that's the straddling that I try to do. I, there's definitely a part of like, I'm trying to make people laugh and try to entertain folks and keep things moving uh, and keep things light, but also with the heavy stuff. I'm not, it's, just, it's not lightness for the sake of lightness. It's lightness in service of being able to go deep on things that are often really hard, really uncomfortable, and and making them feel a little less hard and a little more approachable. But at the time when we first met, you were writing about technology for Fast Company. And I remember there was this one story you did that in 2013 was completely standout. And it was that you left the internet for a month. And in 2020, looking back at that story, you can't leave the internet. 2013 was still a moment. <laughs> It was a moment when we kind of began to understand that this internet wasn't all roses, but mm-hmm. we didn't quite understand yet that it was so woven into the fabric of the life that we were developing that we couldn't separate ourselves. I just yeah. wonder what you remember about that story now. I thank you for um, putting it in that context. You know, I, I can't stress enough how much of a fan of technology I grew up as. My mother brought computers into our house at a time when no one had computers in their house. And it's not like I didn't grow up like Mark Zuckerberg, but I kind of did. You know what I mean? Like technology for me was access. It was information. It was community. I made money because of it. I paid for Harvard because of computers and cleaning bathrooms, like probably in equal (laughs) measure. And I found people, uh, including my own voice because of blogging and social media and the very early stage, the Friendster stages, the Metafilter and Usenet stages of, of online community. So that stuff made me. Yeah. That, I mean, I am. I was on bulletin boards doing the dial-up thing. I remember the internet before there was graphics, before there were ads, uh, before anything moved. And it was just text and you navigated with your cursor because yeah. we didn't have the mouse. So for me to separate myself from this was a really big deal. And it was the beginning of my deeper critique of this world. 
which, you know, came with fury (laughs) and, and with some jokes and with a lot of fire, but to take a break in recognition of the harm that this exposure was doing to me, in recognition of how I had checked out of other parts of my life because this device and the services on top of them are addictive. So I remember that. And and what I also remember, Jesse, was documenting how hard it was to shut it off, you know, and getting mad. I remember my own anger because it brought me back to like Nancy Reagan. And Nancy Reagan in the 80s with her just say no about drugs and having grown up on a block where people were deeply affected by drugs, both in the physiological, like addictive sense, but also in the economic and carceral criminal justice sense and the violence sense. Like it's just say no is is one of the worst pieces of advice that someone in authority could, could, could offer. It's super simplistic. It's moralistic and it's disconnected from reality. And what I found with the tech thing was, you know, people saying, well, you just, just turn it off. You know, just, just don't be online so much. Just maybe don't log in, you know, control yourself. And it's like, that is an unfair statement because I am being targeted here. They've got all the psychologists and all the applied mathematicians and all the computer scientists I thought I wanted to be bearing down on my free will like a Mack truck. And to just turn it off to, and the specific memory I have is trying to disable tools that I had given access to my Twitter account or turn off notifications on my iPhone, both of which required me tap by tap to turn off each switch. There was no master switch. Yeah. And that's when I was like, oh, you chose this. You made it so easy for me to opt in and then put the labor on me to opt out. And I was so pissed off because I was like, you could make this easy, but it doesn't serve you. It serves you to make it hard. Yeah. So this is, I'm now not the user, I am the used. And it was the beginning of that awakening. Well, I got to say that that was one of the first popular critiques of the internet that I remember. The volume just turned up on that critique over the next few years. Where has your personal relationship with technology migrated to in the seven years since? I did another piece about that size for Medium two or three years ago, looking at ads tracking and basically another personal experience where I tried to detoxify myself from from a data perspective, a data detox. And so I used that um, social media unplugging as a bit of a template and it was even harder, you know, and it was even, it was as infuriating, but uh, to be honest, it was like, it's less possible. Food and shelter and all the, the Maslow's hierarchy is, was like, separable from social media specifically in 2013. Now it is, how do you disentangle yourself from Amazon? I'm even less in charge of those choices because I think, okay, I I don't want to give all my money to Jeff Bezos. Cool. So I'll shop somewhere else, but they're still using Amazon web services. (laughs) He still gets the money somehow. And, And so I think it reveals the a break between this individual and this collective in terms of our actions. That social media detox was very individual. I, Baratunde, am going to log off 
of Twitter and Facebook. I'm going to put up a banner image. That was also hard too. There's no really a way to leave and let people know. Like email has an auto response saying I'm on vacation. There's no vacation mode, but it was still possible as an individual. The data detox thing and beyond up until today, individuals cannot solve this. And I think it, it has deepened my analysis and understanding that those who benefit from the current setup want us to think of ourselves as individuals. It serves the status quo for me to think like, what can I, Baratunde, do to get more money or get more healthcare or control my technology more? As opposed to what can I, a citizen in a society do? What can I, as a member of a community do, as one among many with all these other people? What can we do? And so the detox path is, it's, it's the just say no. I did a very elegant just say no in 2013 for Fast Company. I tried it again for Medium in 2018, but we're past that now. We've got to go structural. We've got to go collective. We've got to work together to change the whole game, not just substitute in different players or try to update our helmets and our pads. Like the game itself needs some new rules. As you call for the move from the individualism that has really defined what it is to be an American, honestly to a collective sense of responsibility. You're talking about technology, but you could be talking about just about any structural problem we are facing right now, Baratunde. It fires me up. You can probably hear the energy in my voice. I'm working on a new project that is like leaning into this concept. It's a new show called How to Citizen with Baratunde. And one of the, the revelatory pillars of that show is it's about the we and not the me. Right? It's about us and, and collective over individual. But in America, we grow up in a culture of such individualism. You know, it's like individual rights, individual freedom, you do you, <laughs> all this rhetoric of selfishness. And then we are also taught to hate collective, common, public, which is also us, but in a collective version. So we're trained in collective self-loathing. And it makes sense why we feel this way, but it doesn't make it right. I want to talk about how you expanded the things that you wrote and talked about publicly, you know, because it began with your writing and talking about technology, but you have over the years also become just an outspoken voice for racial justice in a very approachable way. When and how did that voice emerge? So the, I've, I've been running in parallel on both paths for a long time. Fast Company was a very visible place for me. It was a huge deal to have the back page column in Fast Company. I've been writing about the tech thing since college. I had a tech column at the Harvard Crimson in uh, 1996, 97-ish. I also have been writing about race since the 90s. Um, and I started blogging in like 2000 and helped create this blog with Cheryl Conti called Jack and Jill Politics. And we ran hard on that blog from like 2006-ish to 2010. I had a chance to do a lot of tech writing in this kind of lane over here and do a lot of race writing in this lane over here. And part of my life has been trying to unify that. And so some of those fast company columns, I explicitly remember, I'm going to make this about race. Like we're going to talk about incarceration and innovation and who gets to be called an innovator. And I talked to my friend who had served 19 years in prison about like, Talk to me about innovation because I feel like it's not very innovative for a hyper-funded white suburban kid to use the free money offered by generational wealth transfer to make more money. That's actually like very old school. 
We've been doing that for centuries. But for someone who has been denied their humanity to find a way out and a solution where there is none, now that's innovation. And so how do we change like the most innovative and who even gets that label? Um, so so the, the journey for me has been trying to bring together these interests and, and finding, oh, there's a, these aren't separate things. It's not like, oh, there's race over here and racial justice. And then there's tech and like data rights over there. They're the same. So writing was a big part of that and having a forum that forced me to express myself. And then I was a part of this big community. I was a visible black person in the tech world. And, you know, so I was working at The Onion, 2007 to 2012, as a a public person. And not many people who worked at The Onion who were also public, because that's a pretty anonymous creative outlet and pretty white. And I was doing things there with comedy, but heavily with tech. And so I would also just find myself on these stages, on panels, um, talking about tech and talking about race and talking about my experience, talking about being black and why aren't there more of us? And where are the others? And do we need more STEM? And who who's in the room? You know, that was one of the first crossover kind of analyses because I'm in the room, but why am I alone? And I know I'm not uniquely genius. I'm too uniquely lucky. And why don't more people have that? Let's start questioning that. So I remember being in some of those setups and, and being angry and being frustrated yeah. and being like, oh, it's the same all this talk of like new and innovation and we're going to make the world very different. But if it's the same people making it, it's not going to be that different. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee quite simply isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Last year, Baratunde spoke at TED. It was a talk about white Americans calling the police on black Americans. Like most of his work, it was funny. And in the same moment, painfully sobering. And finally, hopeful. I am asking us, to use our power to choose, I am asking us to level up. Thank you, I am Baratunde Rafiq Thurston. His talk went viral. It has been watched more than four million times. The TED Talk definitely shifted 
things. My, you know, I've had shifting moments. My book, How to Be Black, was a big shift, kind of put me on a map in a different way. And that was 2012. Myself. That was 2012. That's right. That's right. Um, working, you know, for the Daily Show, briefly as it was, was also a shift for me. The TED Talk was um, as big as, as, as the book in terms of a statement that I got to make. And it's, um, I had to ask myself a question and it was something that I spoke with my fiance, Elizabeth about, which is like, this thing might get really big if things go well, what do you want to be known for? <laughs> I could do a talk about a lot of things. I have done talks about a lot of things. Part of my whole living making is just talking. So why this was an early question. But here's what it did. Because of the way I put it together with great graphics, <laughs> with an internal semantic logic that was undeniable to even skeptics, with jokes that let people like and laugh at me first, before I got into all this, the very first thing I do in that talk is embarrass myself and sort of prostrate myself comedically as a jester would before the court and then levy a devastating charge against that court. But I get you laughing first and you're like, oh, but he's such a nice guy. I guess I should listen. <laughs> That's all by design and based on decades of practice. And so on the other side of that, it has meant that the message has gone farther than it has before. And that I still, I get messages from people who are like, I don't usually, but I live over here, but my uncle, my dad, my mom, my, but, but, but the way you said that made me think differently. Oh, and, and one of the things to bring it back to this household conversation about what do you want to be known for and what do you do with this opportunity? There's one slide in that talk where I just define white supremacy. And I say, it's, I'm not talking about Nazis. I'm not talking about white power activists. I'm not saying every white person is a racist. I'm describing a system and a structure that privileges outcomes economically, politically, and otherwise for people who are white over others. And it's that system which allows for all these harms to happen. If I could just have a clean, accessible definition of white supremacy, which didn't result in white people running for the hills and acting in an even more racist way, mission accomplished. Strikes me that it brings us around to something we were talking about earlier in our conversation, mm. which is the tension between the system and the individual, the collective and the individual, right? Yeah. The white supremacy viewed as an individual, uh, I don't know, illness, as it were, is something that we yeah. try to divorce ourselves from. Like, well, I'm not a part of that. Whereas if we could just step back, as with technology, and understand ourselves as part of a collective, then we could take on a systemic problem without needing to do the individual work of blaming each other. Yeah, yeah, that's very well said. It works for so many things. And feeling a part of a collective doesn't have to just feel like other people taking your stuff. Yeah. And I think that's the perverse headline that we get hit with often in this culture, this hyper-capitalistic hyper-individualistic American culture, collectives are bad. Unions just employ laziness. Public housing is just people who don't work hard. And so we, we interpret collective failures as individual moral failures. We interpret collective success 
as theft yeah <laughs> you know and and uh undeservedness yeah but only when it suits us you know because we're also very happy to benefit from collective investments right um again when and it then suits us. label that as individual hard work yeah uh, the whole existence of the suburbs is a collective investment by the government it's not like yes your parents worked hard to buy that house also the federal housing authority existed also, the GI Bill existed. Also, the highway system, we all paid for that, but only some of us got to benefit from that. <laughs> and so how we frame this stuff, how we talk about it, without just attacking, sometimes attacks are warranted, but exp explaining the context of this can be helpful. You know, if people are willing to try to listen and not just be afraid of losing something. So we could gain a lot, yeah. So here we are in 2020, um, in the midst yep. of a global Every pandemic, uh -huh. um, in the midst of a racial justice reckoning, and I listened to and gobbled up your limited run uh, podcast series on iHeartRadio earlier this summer. Ah, we're having a moment. We are yes. having a Thank moment. Thank you for listening to that. And, um, the show. And I'm just going to read this one uh, one phrase from the very last episode. This is probably the last 10 minutes of the last episode. That is not to spare our Spoiler alert, know, everybody. Spoiler alert. Listener, you, listeners should still go and listen to the whole thing. But like, Bartender, you say it's just us. It's just us deciding how we're going to talk, how we're going to spend. This is how we're going to show love and respect. This is how we're going to hold accountable. That was broadcast July 22nd. So it's now almost a month later. Are we still in a moment? Or is this moment so fragile that it can be lost with a little bit of time? I think we're still at it. I think, you know, it's the moment felt very crystallized at this intersection of pandemic and police excess, um, specifically Derek Chauvin killing George Floyd, and then the reminder of so many other versions of that story that we experience um, in a moment of allegedly shared sacrifice, some still sacrifice more, not of their own choosing, the involuntary martyrdom foisted upon so many. So we're still in that moment. I also think the 2020 election is an, a natural extension of the intensity of feeling in the presence of an historic moment. Uh, people's Instagram channels have definitely started to change and people aren't just always handing over their mics to like a black woman who hasn't been heard before. So in that sense, that very acuteness has faded some, and we're still talking about all these things because of who wants to be president and who is president. <laughs> um, and because the pandemic is something that we tried to forget about, but it did not forget about us. And because we tried to forget, it's come back even stronger. I think that the internet has just changed the way that we know how to be in community when we don't agree with each other. Mm. What, what do you see? There's a way when you live with people in physical proximity that you can disagree with their voting patterns, but cheer their kids on in softball. And the internet doesn't allow us to do that. Yeah, well said. So. It's a great observation. The internet allows us to pop into and out of each other's political context without the other parts, right? <laughs> right? And so it's it's not only that we 
disagree and don't physically see each other, know each other's kids, the opportunity to encounter that disagreement is beyond anything that could possibly happen in the physical world. Yeah. Um, and, and it actually brings us back to that earlier part of our discussion. You know, one of the early revelations I had about the harm of the internet, it's like, oh, I this can just be a racism on demand machine. Like I can just type in something racist and just get super angry. You're like, or involuntarily, I can be talking about a movie with my friends and then Nazis show up. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in physical community. Yeah. People generally exercise restraint around that. Even if they are the Nazi, like they don't just in the middle of dinner start singing some white supremacist chant, but that's what can happen on the internet. And so we blow through context um, and violently so. And so it's, it's traumatizing in a, in a different way. Well done, internet. <laughs> well, look, so you're a critic, but are you also a techno-optimist? Yeah, I'm an optimistic skeptic and a skeptical optimist. And I think there, there's no simple here. Yeah. There's no binary. We're in the world of the spectrum. It's not a switch. It's a dial. Um, and for all of what I just described and what you just shared as well about the harm that can come from conflict based, based on the internet, so too uh, comes collaboration, comes lack of loneliness, comes connection of a different kind. You know, physical communities can be very isolated. Yeah. So yeah. the internet providing a, a almost literal lifeline to people yeah. is, uh, is newly possible, uniquely possible because of this tool. And so, yeah, I don't, I'm not in the camp of like, shut it down. Completely. I'm not a Luddite or a neo-Luddite, but I think I am in camp. We have to exercise our power. And we've disengaged so much and said, like, oh, the internet over there, <laughs> those people make that we can make that decision. We we could have built something different and we still can. And we're always going to be wrestling with this. Um, because there's nothing perfect in this world. That was Baratindi Thurston. You can find him online at baratende.com. And his new show, How to Citizen with Baratende, premieres next week. Be sure to check it out. So it's August. It's that time in August when in a normal year, half the people I know have their out of office on their emails. But this isn't a normal year, of course. So this week on Hello Monday's Office Hours, we're talking about the last hurrahs of summer. Summer 2020, this summer. It's almost Labor Day weekend in the States. You might be on vacation or barbecues or parties, but this year they may be happening in your own backyard. But we're still playing it really safe. Are you? Join me and our producer, Sarah Storm, for our weekly office hours, Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. You can find us on LinkedIn Live by following me, Jesse Hempel, on LinkedIn. We hope to see you there. And now... If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Victoria Taylor and Juliette Barreau are beloved members of our collective. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Poddington Bear. 
Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. See you next Monday. I remember that we've met. I don't remember the meal, but what do you recall of this alleged meal? I feel a little bit better for recalling nothing about it apart from really enjoying it, laughing a lot. I think some friend had introduced us and it was a wonderful lunch. And then... um, then we never emailed again. It was like a, <laughs> a first friend date gone wrong, I guess. We, no, we we had accomplished so much that we, we needed exactly. that that to breathe, and I mean, it, it was it took eight years, and then we finally exhausted the good energy and karma from that.